Welcome to True Crime Sucks, a podcast about the best and worst of true crime TV and documentaries. With your host, Adam Todd Brown. Hey, everybody. Welcome to True Crime Sucks, a podcast about the best and worst of true crime TV and documentaries. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. Joining me as co-host this week, Andy Sell is here. Hey. Andy's back, I should say, after having recently covered the Pez Outlaw on the <laughs> podcast. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. That's a nice little refreshing little break from most of the content that, because uh, I don't even like true crime. Yeah, and also we did an episode about Jared from Subway. <laughs> and ever since then, we've been keeping it pretty lighthearted. <clears throat> yeah letting people have time to recover by the way if people don't know andy is my co-host on a podcast called you don't even like this band which you can listen to wherever podcasts are downloaded and you should it's really good it's great yeah it's a very funny podcast and i have a great time doing it i like you i like travis i like the subjects it's fun time such fun times the documentary we're covering today is not fun times it's a classic. The Thin Blue Line. Errol Morris's The Thin Blue Line. Yeah, this is about as classic as it gets when you're talking about documentaries. You know, if you were to ask people like the top four, whatever, most well-known documentaries, this is going to be on that list for sure. And it's hard to even name a prominent true crime documentary that came out before this. Yeah, and it was also pretty anomalous for Errol Morris at the time. It was different than what he had been doing. Right. It's a 1988 documentary. It's probably the first true crime documentary to be honest about the police. (laughs) Yeah, this is the kind of true crime content that I actually do really, really like is the stuff that's like, well, here are the problems in our, our systems. Agreed. Yeah, I feel like if you look back on true crime from like the 50s and 60s and 70s, that was just like tabloid shit where they were expecting you to be jerking off to the details of grisly murders and shit. And things took a turn when this documentary came out. Yeah, the only thing I can think of before this that was like meant to like influence, you know, the law enforcement scenario of of a given case was the Zodiac Killer movie which was made while the Zodiac Killer was still active. But that is like 100% an exploitation, like drive-in movie. Right. It's not, it's not, it's narrative. It's not even, you know, a documentary or even a pseudo doc really like, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) this is very different tonally. Yeah. This covers an incident that happened in Dallas in 1976 involving a guy named Randall Adams. He runs out of gas one night on the way home from work, at least to hear him tell it, and gets picked up by this teenage kid. And they end up spending some time that night drinking and partying and going to the movies. Yeah. And he says they part ways after the movie. The kid goes his own way. (laughs) Hey, listen to You Don't Even Like This Band, the Fleetwood Mac season. In stores now. And then out of nowhere, Randall Adams gets brought in for questioning over the shooting of a police officer. And the cops try to get him to sign a confession. And by that, I mean, they pull a fucking gun on him. 
Well, they're and, also trying to get him to pick up a gun. They're like do that like Clint Eastwood like throw the gun in the sand and then like pick it up kind of thing. But like just because they're trying to get his prints on the gun, right? And you can tell this is happening in an era where there really was no police accountability when it came to criminal acts, framing people, police brutality. There might have been like on the local level, and we were. In 1988, right on the cusp of Fuck the Police being yeah. released, which really did kind of change the, the narrative in that way. But even then, it took the Rodney King incident, you know, like three, four years later for police brutality to be ignored for like another 30 years. <laughs> and then 2014-ish, yeah. yeah. we started caring. Yeah. But- yeah, th so this was this was pretty early on in all of that. And you can tell from the cops they interview, because even when they talk about when Randall Adams brings up them, like pulling a gun on him during his interrogation, one of the cops is just like, huh, I'd say we gave him stern talking to like he's being like cocky about it without actually saying, yeah, we pulled a gun on that motherfucker and I hate it. Yeah. Yeah, clearly it becomes pretty clearly immediately that like all of these cops that are interviewing are like lying and like willfully lying and know that they're lying. Yeah, willfully lying and leaning on like bullshit cop speak. It's really it's so much bullshit cop speak. It's so much like this weird moralizing like idiot poetry about like, you know, psychopaths and good and evil and justice yes. and and retribution and it really is like they've just learned to speak the dark arcane language of the fucking machine and it's yeah. speaking through them it's so gross the judge too that they keep Ooh. talking to that guy yeah oh my god i want to watch his face melt like he at the end of raiders of the lost ark he reminded me of mike huckabee he did well that's the other thing this movie was made in 1988 right like ronald reagan is in charge yeah uh bush is about to be in charge like, this is an election year for a texas republican right and when we say cops speak like one of the classics you hear when it comes to cops interrogating people is well he showed no remorse whatsoever yeah and it's brought up in this documentary well maybe that's because he didn't do it and there's nothing to show remorse for. Yeah, I love that, that the defense attorney, Dennis White, when he's talking about that and he's addressing that, it's like, well, you know, especially when they bring in psych psychiatrists, you know, court appointed psychiatrists right. to like examine and psychologists. And it's like, well, yeah, if someone didn't do it, they're not going to feel guilty about it. Right. If they if they're just innocent, there would be no remorse for them to express. And. Yeah. And then one of them has the gall to say he almost over protested his innocence. <laughs> you this are is... accusing this man of murdering a cop. Yeah, this is Kafka-esque. This is like straight up. This is Kafka's The Trial, yeah. this whole thing. Like, it's not like you're accusing him of shoplifting and it's like he's going to have to pay for a $15 item. If he's proven incorrect, this is this man's life. And you're like, he he went overboard protesting his innocence. 
Yeah, hey, hey, not to quote Bill Shakespeare, but methinks the psycho doth protest too much. And we know because it's depicted in several other true crime documentaries. If he didn't over protest his innocence, they'd be like, well, I don't know about you, but if the police were accusing me of something like this, I would be banging on the walls. Yeah, protesting my innocence. And he was very calm as if he showed no remorse at all. And it's like, shut the fuck up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I hate it. Yeah. No, he's garbage. The, the, all the cops in this movie are garbage. <laughs> the, the two court appointed or DA appointed psychologists are garbage. Yeah. It's they a- they end up keeping him in that interrogation room so long. He smokes two fucking packs of cigarettes, which that's a lot. Yeah, yeah, I think I could pull two packs if I was in an interrogation room. I mean, I know it's possible. Yeah. So the only cop depicted in this who I will give the benefit of the doubt to is Robert Wood, because all he did, (laughs) all he did was pull over a car that didn't have its lights on. And by all accounts, it seems like he was just going to be like, turn your fucking lights on. Let me see your license. Yeah, and he send the person on their way. And instead, he gets fucking shot. Yeah. And he dies at the scene. This is one of those occasions where I'm like, I guess a cab includes Robert Wood. But- yeah, I don't know that that you have to be that fundamentalist about it though. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, no, there's a line. Like it's not like you're gonna get canceled for saying, Yeah, it sucks that this guy got shot when he was yeah i mean he left his ticket book in the car he wasn't even gonna write a ticket he was just gonna walk up he had no idea the car was stolen yeah so obviously that sucks that's that's a bummer he had a family who loved him yeah all of that so his partner teresa turco she does end up being a problem (laughs) she's not great she witnesses all of this and is not hurt but she also can't remember the license plate of the car the shooter was driving. Once she just starts firing at the car, like she run, jumps out of the cop car, starts firing at the fleeing car, doesn't call it in, goes to help it, like just doesn't do anything she's supposed to do procedure wise and then can't remember key information. Also, she, I, I think it's hilarious that she was just drinking a shake from Burger King. Well... <laughs> My question, and this is a thing I kind of just thought of, do you think they threatened her into changing her description of this? Because if you remember, she changes her story. Well, she changes her story. And early on, when they're first describing the shooting, one of the like prosecutors or like, I think it's one of the higher ups within the police department is like, we have reason to believe maybe she didn't even get out of the car. And yeah, yeah. That wouldn't be proper police procedure. And there is a point where she tells one version of events. Then she meets with internal affairs and comes out the other end of that with a different story. I feel like in that meeting, they were like, we know you stayed in the fucking car. Yeah. And we will prosecute you for being an accessory to this murder if you don't change your story. The story of her shooting at the car doesn't seem to check out either because she doesn't hit it once. Right. There's nothing to suggest that there was any damage done that she ever hit the car. But there is like she did at least throw the milkshake out of the car like that much. Right. Because we see the (laughs) the milkshake marked on the crime scene 
chocolate liquid. Chocolate liquid. I will say this. Here's the other thing, though. Errol Morris, I'm sorry, sir. You are a legend. This is a great film. You've made a lot of great document. You are a documentarian hero, but that is a strawberry shake you used in the dramatization, and the police notes clearly show that it is a chocolate shake that she was drinking. Oh, sure, sure. So details are important, okay? I will add in a for real criticism of this into the mix. Like I get that you're oh, trying- I'm sorry. Do you think I'm being cute right now? This is for real, Adam. <laughs> like I know Errol Morris is an artsy guy and he's trying to make a movie as much as it is a documentary, but put the goddamn names of the people you're talking to on the screen yeah. at least for a second, at yeah. least for one second. I really do appreciate the like the rawness of it, the fact that there's no voiceover, the fact that it's literally yeah. just these people's voices telling the story and their their narrative is being edited together with like very light dramatization. That's the other thing I love about the dramatization in this movie. It's mostly just like singles of objects, like somewhat close shots of significant objects in 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 the sen- in the memories that people are sharing rather than really um heavy literal reenactments and i appreciate all that but yeah the no name thing is just like all right pal (laughs) yeah it like you have a philip glass score here you don't get to claim objectivity to the point where you're not telling us anyone's names (laughs) yeah and it is legitimately frustrating at points because i'm sorry adam is it frustrating or is it frustrating frustrating which yes one of the one of the cops uses that word and i love that errol morris left that in (laughs) yeah (laughs) well that's his thing he he like it's all of these people just speaking for themselves so he's letting them kind of leave themselves out to dry a lot of the time yeah especially in the the you know the three surprise witnesses that we'll we'll get to but he's just kind of like letting these people you know hang themselves more or less yeah it's like what happened to moby in the woodstock documentary (laughs) Where he was like, man, this was nothing like the 60s when it was all about peace and love. And then they immediately cut to someone being like, there was so much rape at the 60s Woodstock. Yeah. You have no idea. There was just no internet, so people didn't know. Yeah. Ugh. So, yeah, the cop who says frustrated is the same one who's speculating that maybe Wood's partner stayed in the car. And it just seems like they're putting pressure on her because he uses the word frustrated in relation to her and yeah because she also like they make a big deal of her misidentifying the car (sighs) that's so there's so much like casual misogyny in that like there's so much of these guys just being like stupid lady cop doesn't even know cars yeah and it's like i wonder why she wasn't in this documentary yeah maybe uh she doesn't want anything to do with any of you people anymore and so they bring in a hypnotist to talk to Teresa Turco and she still can't recall the license plate <laughs> of the so car. Fun. These guys are like, how dare you not know a Mercury Comet from a Chevy Nova or a Chevy Vega? What's wrong with you? Blah blah blah. Let's call a psychic. Let's call <laughs> let's call a pseudoscience in here. Let's get are there Ghostbusters we can reach out to? And yeah, they show a Chevy Vega and a Mercury Comet like side by side from several different angles and they look like the exact same fucking car i would i would not have known the difference yeah i would have been like it was a blue car (laughs) 
I'm not a mechanic. I'm, if you, I'm want not to- even sure it was blue because we have red and blue flashing lights. They kind of like change yeah. the colors of things. So there's this guy named Calvin Cunningham who comes forward. His home was broken into and his car was stolen and it's a Mercury Comet. And police find the car and realize it was a guy named David Ray Harris who was driving. But he like, it seems like he flees and gets away at first. Police hear that he may have been involved in a police shooting in Dallas. And this is when a bunch of David Harris's friends all appear on camera and are like, yeah, man, he came back and told us he killed a cop. Yeah. Like five of them. Yeah. And so. Yeah. His his friends, by the way, are great. There are a handful of people in this doc that I adore. And it's his David's friends and then the defense attorney, Dennis White, and then the other defense attorney, Edith James. Edith James is maybe my favorite person in the world yeah. after revisiting this. But yeah, his friends are great. They're Yeah, man, he killed him. He yeah. doesn't have a conscience. He has no soul. He might be Michael Myers. This guy <laughs> is a problem. Yeah, that that's a lot of character references right there. And <laughs> like it really leaves no doubt about the character of this guy. Well, just then when they when they start exploring him and his story, David Harris and his life, and they bring in the cop from Vidor, Texas, right near Beaumont, like when they get to that. The cop there is like, yeah, he does this shit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's kind of, you know, he does awful shit and he lies about it. And, you know, he's kind of a kind of a, you know, a little bit of a rapscallion. And they bring him in for questioning. And now the police, he says he tells the police he did not kill that cop. He was just bragging about having done it to impress his friends. And he blames the shooting on a guy named Randall Adams, who we've already talked about. And the cops just believe it. They just, they're just like, okay, thank you for telling us the truth. We are now going to go railroad Randall Adams and try to send him to prison for life. And if you just do a bare amount of investigating at that time, you would have found that he had all the reason in the world to kill that cop compared to Randall Adams, who had no reason to kill that cop. There were, if Randall Adams was the one who was pulled over, there was nothing happening in his life that that cop was going to find out, except maybe he had been drinking or yeah, he'd smoked a couple joints or something like, yeah, you don't, you don't go from no criminal record to killing a cop to avoid a DUI. No. Yeah. Overnight. Meanwhile, <laughs> David Harris has like a trunk full of guns. He's high as shit. He's got warrants. He, the car he's in is stolen. Yes. And he's the one who stole it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That's an important detail. He stole the car he's in. Right. So that alone, the cops had to know he was lying. But the hitch here is that David Harris was only 16. Yeah. So if they charge him, they're not going to be able to get a big boy conviction and they won't get to execute someone over this. And And that's what it is. Yeah. They want to execute someone for killing a cop. Yeah. It's a bloodletting. They want the state needs to say, if you kill one of us, we kill you. That's all it is. It's just Texas masculine Old Testament justice horseshit of like the state needs to flex its muscle and needs to take a life because somebody took the life of one of ours. Right. 
And they weren't going to be able to do that with David Harris. So no, they just accept his story right out of the gate and go after Randall Adams, which is nuts because the gun was found in Vidor, Texas, David Harris's hometown, the place he went back to when he was bragging about killing these cops. So what? Randall Adams killed the cop and David Harris took the gun back home with him? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's 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 how you do. You know, you see two movies of the drive-in, <laughs> you decide you don't like the second one, and you're still really stewing about it. You're like, man, I really fucking hated that movie. When a cop pulls you over and you're like, shit, I'm mad about that movie. Now this cop's fucking up my day. So you shoot the cop and then you're <laughs> like, hey, you take this gun back to your home uh, to get it away from me because I'm sorry. I was just really mad about the movie. Yeah. I love that. I'm sorry. I really love that. They went to a drive-in and watched the student body and the swinging cheerleaders. That's incredible. And that Randall Adams got really uncomfortable during the swinging cheerleaders. To be honest, if I were watching the swinging cheerleaders with a 16 year old, yeah, I would also be like, we can't, I don't, here's the thing. If I were Randall Adams, I'm just getting out of that car and walking away. I'm not like, I'm not being like, you need to drive me back to my hotel room. It's like, no, I'm going to find my own way home. <laughs> yeah. I'm good. You exactly. stay and watch the the nudie movie you're watching. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. So David Harris's story is that they leave this movie and then they drive around a bit. And sometime after midnight, they get pulled over. And as Robert Wood is approaching the car, David Harris says he like ducks down in the seat. <laughs> to give him a blowjob is what it looks like in the traumatization exactly and he says then randall adams rolls down the window and shoots this cop and that's an important detail because we mentioned that robert wood's partner changed her story at one point her initial version of events was that there was one person in the car and that they were wearing like one of those fur lined denim jackets with the big like wool hood, which is a very recognizable thing. Yeah. But then at some point after this meeting with internal affairs, she changes her story and says the person in the car had bushy hair. Yeah. Which that's so much different than a fur lined denim parka. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, Worth noting that Randall Adams at the time had very like crazy Lindsey Buckingham 70s Dude, hair. The mugshot and photos of him as like at that age, like as a young guy, he parties. That dude parties and I love he looks fun. He I looks like a fun guy to hang out with. I wasn't sure what you were going to say, but I was going to follow it up by oh. saying <laughs> he looks like he parties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Randall Adams, young Randall Adams parties. Yeah. He's got yeah. that mustache, that fun mustache and that bushy hair, smokes weed, goes to drive-in movies. <laughs> With 16-year-olds. <laughs> Sounds great. Sounds like uh, great yikes. And so Randall's story, on the other hand, is that David Harris had a bunch of guns in his car and was playing around with one pistol in particular. And he finally gets him to put it away. And they go to the movie. But he does say that he was playing with this pistol and that David Harris handed it to him. And then he put it 
underneath the seat, which if his fingerprints were on that gun. Yeah, that's why. That would explain it, but also where on the gun. Like, were they, were his hands wrapped around the barrel that was pointing at him? In which case, he probably didn't fire the gun. He- yeah. <laughs> well, then they go to David's, is it apartment, hotel room, where he's staying with his brother. Okay. Yes. And, and he won't let him stay there. And I'm sorry, if you were just playing with a gun around me, casually, I'm not inviting you to crash on the couch at my place. Yeah, and also the 16-year-old rule is still in effect. That's true, yeah. Gun or no gun, 16-year-old's not not generally welcome in my hotel room. Yeah, yeah. As an adult, you don't want to be inviting 16-year-olds to your hotel room. So Randall tells him he has to leave, and that also becomes... If anything else, just because a 16-year-old is not going to appreciate the humor of Carol Burnett the same way that an adult would, you know? He and his brother just want to chill and watch Carol Burnett the rest of the night. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what he says he did. He and his brother watched TV and David Harris drove off into the night. And so the police bring in a stenographer while he's talking. And she comes back like 30 minutes later with this typed out statement. And he apparently reads it and is fine with what's in it and signs it. But then the police go to the media and say, Randall Adams signed a confession saying he murdered this cop. And he's like, that's not what the thing I signed says. Yeah, not at all. He gets arrested anyway, which is crazy. Yeah, bad news. Well, then we get his right, his attorneys, who I love. Right. Edith James, who's just the best. She's just her her whole demeanor. Everything she says is the best. Uh, And then Dennis White. And Dennis White tells this story about the DA's office, like trying to basically incite right wing violence against him. Like they're going around, yes. right, around Vidor telling, you know, and Vidor is, they, I love that this documentary makes it a point, you know, to like be like, yeah, there's a clan presence in that yes. area. A big and, clan presence. Yeah, a lot of good old boys, fucking racist horse shit. Right. And so they go, the DA's like, yeah, this guy's uh, Eastern educated, which we all know is code in that area for Jewish. Right. And like telling them all this, stuff, like basically trying to incite right wing bigoted violence against this defense attorney who's going to be coming in to ask questions about David Harris. Yeah. And even if there was no violence, it probably didn't help when he needed to go out in the community and talk to like police in the area, things like yeah. that, because now yeah. no one trusts him because the DA has put it in their ear that they shouldn't because Jew. Yeah. Well, and there's almost even this like, even like rawer form of territoriality in it where it's like David Harris is one of us. Like, yeah, he might be a fuck up. He might be a criminal. He might be a piece of shit, but he's our fuck up. He's our criminal. Like, and this outsider's going to come in and fucking try to take your good old boy that you love away from you. Like, it's a lot of that. Like even the cop, again, even the cop in Vidor, Sam Cottrell, who's like, I guess, right. Isn't that the one that Dennis White said was the only trustworthy cop in the town? Yeah. I, as a rule, don't write cops names down when I'm doing notes, but. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There well, was one who seemed like he was an okay egg. But even he was sort of like, kind of being like, oh, David, you know, he does, he's kind of a fuck up, but he's lovable, you know? And it's like, no, yeah. he's a murderer. He's a murderer. 
It reminds me of a documentary we covered early on, which is another early true crime documentary, very seminal. It's by Joe Berlinger. It's called My oh. Brother's Keeper. Yeah, yeah. And this is almost the reverse of that, because what you see in My Brother's Keeper is this guy gets accused of murdering his brother, and he's like this weird, like, fringe outsider mm. guy. They all lived in the same house together, he and his four brothers. And he's like a misfit and an outcast in the community. But when they come and try to charge him with this murder, the community's like, no, 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 no. He wouldn't do that. He's a fucking weirdo, but he's our weirdo. Yeah. And like they rally around him in the right way. In this, yeah. the community rallies around the fucking cops and it's gross. It's always anytime there's rallying around cops, it's disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. As we'll see in the, you know, the application of this film's title, uh, what, 30 years later, 40 right. years later almost. Yeah, I'm surprised he went with this title because that comes up so briefly in this. Yeah. Like the judge gets all fucking misty eyed talking about it. And it's like fucking choke. Ugh. Yeah. That's why I think the title is perfect because it is like, no, this is the actual consequence of a thin blue line is yeah. this kind of bullshit is, is the, is the miscarriage of justice. And that's, yeah, Dennis White and Edith James, when they go into the trial and they're like, this is a slam dunk, open and shut case. Like, our guy's innocent. We're going to get him off. No problem. They get in there and boom, we're going to trial because they have these fucking three assholes. Yeah, they get to trial because it's it's his lawyers who bring up at this point in the documentary that this is probably more about them wanting to convict someone on adult charges as opposed to sending a kid to juvenile hall until he's like 25 yeah. or something. So yeah, they also are the ones who bring up the stuff about Teresa Turco kind of changing her story. And that's when they start talking about the Millers <sighs> because you're right. The lawyers were like, well, this is going to be a slam dunk. For one thing, David Harris is the one who stole the car. The gun belonged to David Harris. He used that gun to commit another robbery when he got back to Vidor, Texas, because he like robbed a 7-Eleven when he went back there. Mm -hmm. And like, there was no reason for Randall Adams to commit this murder. So they're like, we're obviously going to win. This is going to be quick. And then they get there and there's three people being <laughs> introduced as witnesses for the prosecution. And that's when we meet the Millers. <laughs> I feel like we never actually hear Mrs. Miller's first name. It's uh, Emily. Emily? Yeah. Emily is a piece of fucking work. She is quite clearly unhinged. Uh, she yes. is a nutcase. She is. She fancies herself a citizen detective. So there's there. I love that this even in this movie in 1988, there are little indictments of true crime culture around that whole yeah. story about John Dillinger and the people dipping rags and newspapers into his blood after he was killed. Yes. That I love that little meta indictment of true crime fandom. And then this lady who is like true crime fan prototype, 100%. Absolutely. She talks about how, for one thing, she claims there's always like murders and crimes happening around her. And yeah. she's like, and I'm always trying to like solve it before the police and try to figure <laughs> out what happened before the police do. And she was, she says something about always wanting to help in situations yeah. like that. And then she goes, I really do. 
I really do. Her eyes are psych psychopath eyes. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> she is not okay. She and her husband end up testifying against Randall Adams. And it's because they claim to have drove driven past the scene. I don't even know if that part's true, but maybe. Yeah. I like the husband's thing there because this is how we know that Dallas is culturally different from Los Angeles because it's around Christmas and fire. He hears so it sounds like a firework and he's like, nobody lights off fireworks around this time of year. And it's like, yeah, they do in L.A., baby. <laughs> yeah, no shit. And I just liked her husband for at least in this moment being a little honest about her. Yeah, it seems like since this incident, things might have fallen off the rails for those two a little bit. His story about her calling the cops on him. Yeah. To be like, he's a drug dealer. And he's like, yeah, she, they opened my trunk. And of course, there was nothing. And like, just false accusations. Yeah. He actually says, if she thinks you did something, she will call the police. Yeah. And that speaks to her being this fucking amateur armchair detective that she yeah. thinks she is which uh oh, don't don't strive to be that people no yeah that's that's not a good thing to be really and her claim is so suspicious because she says that she turned her head as they were driving by and in the dark of night granted there were probably headlights on but she claims she could turn and was able to see the face of the person who committed this murder and she describes him as looking like Randall Adams. But then when they interview her husband separately, he clearly describes David Harris. Yeah, yeah. In that front seat. When neither of them pick hit Randall Adams out in the lineup when no. they when they discuss the, the lineup. And not just that, the husband also says on camera, he looked a whole lot different when we got to court. <laughs> It's almost it's like, like he's a different person. It's like, dude, it's not the same person. But what they end up suggesting is that these two are like conspiring to get reward money. Well, and they were in trouble for a domestic dispute. They'd had the cops called on them for like having a, what was, somebody described it as a week long knife fight. Yeah, a three day <laughs> knife fight. Yeah. And did it involve the third guy? Because they interview a third witness who also seemed like he just lied on the stand. Yeah, well, and the third guy says that he was picking up a woman who, or that he was on a date with a woman who was married. He also suggests that she was passing out uh, sick from alcohol. And also that um, he was married. And yes, yeah. So it's a lot, or yeah, that he, whatever it is, his story is, is the least fleshed out, I think. But yeah. again, Errol Morris does that thing where he's just like, I'm just going to let this guy talk. And the guy, the more he talks, the more you're like, wow. You are 100% full of shit in every scenario. Yeah. He starts his interview by talking about how he's a salesman and he remembers every detail he sees. <laughs> he has a, then, like a photographic memory and then proceeds yeah. to forget every detail about everything. He uses, yeah, he uses the term photographic memory and then he's like, and the cop was parked behind the car or maybe it was in front. I don't remember. And it's like, <laughs> when would it ever be in the front? Like, you don't yeah. even have to guess at that. Of course, the car was behind him if he yeah, pulled he's, over. He's like, uh, it was a blue uh, Ford, I think. It was a Ford. It was blue. It might have been blue. Uh, it was a car. <laughs> blue car. He literally does that. Yeah. I couldn't tell if that guy was involved in the three-day knife fight. It kind of seems like 
maybe the three of them knew each other and were all scheming to get yeah. this reward money. It's possible. Either way, all three of them are absolutely lying. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, two of them are only in it because they're trying to get charges against them dropped. Well, and she has, uh, Emily Miller has charges against her daughter pending at right. the time. So this is also a cooperating with police to get charges against her daughter dropped and to get reward money. And none of that comes up in court. No. Even on appeal, there's a woman they interview in here who calls that trio. Scum. Well, she's yeah, she's another gas station employee that says that that tells us that Emily Miller was fired from the gas station for stealing. Right. And that she calls them scum and that they would do anything. But she also after she says scum, she says something where it's like, oh, I think this lady's racist. Oh, she might be. But doesn't she also say that one of them told her that they were going to set like do this? For I think, yeah, I mean, she's not wrong about them yeah. being scum. She's absolutely right about them being scum. Yeah. I mean, she's you know, she, she lives in Texas in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> old white woman in Texas in the old 80s. white woman in Texas in the eighties. Yeah, she's probably racist. Yeah, yeah, but also these three probably scum. Yeah, because they really do just kind of lie. Oh yeah, they're absolutely just trying to get what they want without any concern for the consequences of this guy who's going to be sentenced to death over it. And they go through all three of their stories, and at the end of it, a cop they they cut to a cop going. We have three witnesses identifying Adams as the shooter. And what you'll note is all three of them give different descriptions. One said they saw Randall Adams' face. One said the driver looked like David Harris. And then that third guy they interview said there were two people in the car. Yeah. So you don't have a definitive <laughs> description of the person driving the car. You have three different descriptions. And the cops are like, good enough. Yeah. And none of them pick him out in a lineup. Right, right. That's the other thing. Is one of them doesn't one of them pick out a yeah, never mind. Yeah. So nevertheless, Randall Adams is found guilty. And now it comes time to decide if he's worthy of the death penalty. <sighs> and this is a thing I bring up a lot when it comes to like scientists and doctors. Like just because someone describes themselves as a scientist or does science for a living, it doesn't mean they automatically deserve your trust. And no, the no. word science isn't infallible, especially as it pertains to stuff like this. Yeah, well, yeah, especially in like criminal justice scenarios, like even like most forensic science, from what I understand, a lot of criminal investigation forensic science is utter horseshit. Yeah. Like it, a lot of it's just made up. And in this case, what the state has to prove, because they really want to kill someone for the murder of this cop. And what they have to prove to get to make this a death penalty case is that Randall Adams, who has no history of violence before this, no real criminal record to speak of. They have to prove that he is a threat to commit more murders if he ever gets out of prison. And they bring in this psychiatrist who does all of these like bullshit tests. Randall Adams <laughs> describes yeah. him as a big ostrich looking dude. And he gives Randall Adams these like pieces of paper that have stuff drawn on them. And he's like, copy what's drawn on that paper underneath the line. And he asks him shit like, what does the phrase a rolling stone gathers no moss mean? And he somehow comes out the other end of this 
having decided that Randall Adams will indeed commit more murders if he's ever let out and that he deserves the death penalty. Yeah, so this is, right, Dr. James Grigson. Yes. Who is nicknamed Dr. Death because this is what he says about literally every case he's ever brought in on. Yeah, this is what he does. This is what he does. He gets people sentenced to death by saying, oh, they'll kill again. He has no remorse. And he's a he's a threat to society. And the irony actually about this guy is that this guy is the re- this psychiatrist, Dr. James Grigson, is the reason Errol Morris made this movie. Oh, he inspired Errol Morris to make this movie because I guess Errol Morris was interviewing him and he said, well, you should do like a documentary where you're talking to death row inmates or whatever, you know. Oh, and wow. So he started then talking to, to Randall Adams. And that's when this documentary evolved. Because before this, Errol Morris was making like stuff about eccentric communities and people. Right. Like this is only his like third feature, I think. And then Dr. James Grigson, the guy who so the guy who sentenced him to death essentially is also in a way responsible for what happened in the wake of this film. Yeah, that's true. That's interesting. And yeah, this guy seems like a huge problem. And I hope he's, he's dead a, and in hell now. He's a garbage piece of shit. Yeah, he has to be dead now, right? Yeah, I'm sure. He looked old as shit in the pictures yeah. in this documentary. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that is a thing you see a lot in true crime documentaries. And I say it all the time. Like in any criminal case, you can find a forensic pathologist who will argue your point, like whatever point you want yeah. argued. You see it in the staircase, which is one of the most infuriating documentaries I've ever seen. That's like a team of pathologists just instead of doing what the police said happened and seeing if the physical evidence supports it. They just started like doing little experiments to get the result they wanted and then decided, well, that's what he did too. And it's nonsense. It's fucking nonsense. And people go to prison for it all the time. And in this case, a guy got sentenced to death over it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I like Dennis White's whole thing about how it's just the machine. And the wheels of justice just started turning too fast for anybody to slow them down or stop them. The machinery is there and you hit start on that machine and there's no stopping it. And that's the problem because the machine is largely full of assholes like James Grigson and the DA and the fucking judge who starts crying about the prosecuting uh, the DA's like thing about the thin blue line protecting the the society from chaos. And it's just like, uh, that's the origin of this term. That makes a lot of sense. You're disgusting. Yeah. Fuck off. So there is an appeal which ends up being really indicative. I think of how Texas justice was working at the time because he first appeals on a state level and that appeal is denied nine to nothing. Even after that woman comes in and is like, look, these witnesses you called are some shady characters and I'm pretty sure they lied just to get reward money. After her testimony, one of the prosecutors like laughs at her in the hallway and is like, doesn't matter what you say, you are not winning this. And it comes back nine to nothing. And even his lawyer is like, come on. Yeah. We couldn't get one or two in our favor, nine to nothing. Well, the whole, I mean, even when they show the journal, like the the newspaper headline, which is cop killer appeals conviction. And it's like, woof, even the journalists in this community, like there's no, 
yeah, it's again, it's Kafka-esque. It's like there are three sane people in this insane situation and everyone else is just clamoring for this man's blood. Yeah, but then it goes to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court <laughs> by a ruling of eight to one is like, yeah, you can't fucking execute this guy. Are you kidding me? Yeah. There's no way. And so the death penalty gets overturned, but then they just commute his sentence to life in prison. So That's so still, fucked up. Yeah. So that he's they, still in prison. They just have the governor commute the sentence. So it's like, it's not even about the life for a life anymore. Now it's like, well, we can't look like we're wrong. So we, this can't go to retrial. So right. we have to kill the retrial by, by commuting the sentence to life instead of death. Meanwhile, David Harris is out this whole time. And the thing about David Harris, he might seem a little charismatic in his interviews, but he seems like just a straight up violent felon. Yeah, he's I, I don't know what his deal is. We get they get into it, but I think he just this might be like a lead in the water supply situation because yeah, this guy is just a stone cold killer. He's just a criminal like yeah. and I hate all the time. Like, I get it in a situation like his. You have to explain, well, this kid had a pretty rough upbringing, but also so do so many people yeah. who don't end up just being like this guy is like a cold-blooded murderer yeah this story about how he gets arrested here right if we're gonna be i'm assuming yeah we can talk about it because while he's out and randall adams is in prison david miller commits all these different crimes and the one that ends up sending him to death row eventually in 1985 he broke in to a house where a guy was there alone with his girlfriend. He ties the guy up, makes him go to the bathroom and locks him in there. And then is trying to leave, like kidnap this guy's girlfriend. And the guy manages to get out and runs out with a gun and a yeah. shootout ensues. And David Harris kills him. And when the police interview him, David Harris is like, I had to shoot him. That guy was crazy. Yeah. Why'd that guy could pull a gun? What an idiot. Yeah. He's like, was he you crazy? After, came after me with a gun. And it's like you were kidnapping his girlfriend with a gun. Yeah. So, and I like that speaks to what kind of fucking problem David Harris is in the yeah. world. I mean, there are certain conditions here. He's a 16 year old kid who had a rough up, upbringing, a rough life, probably like not a lot of things going on. So like the shooting the cop was probably one of those scenarios where it's like, I'm in this car. I stole it. I got to I got to get out of this situation. I'm going to kill this cop. But I mean, not to say I empathize with him because I there's there's that whatever that line is, you know, that's the part I don't get. Whatever it is where it's like, well, I pinned in here. Let me kill somebody. That's the solution to this problem. Or I want that thing. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hit this lady in the head with a rolling pin. Or, you know, like whatever that part of it is, I don't get. But yeah. like, especially with, <laughs> well, we'll get to it. Never mind. Um, yeah, go ahead. But he's just a dangerous, yeah, he's clearly a very dangerous guy. Yeah, yeah, he is charismatic in the way that like everybody that doesn't give a shit is charismatic because not giving a shit is a charismatic quality. Right. But it's still, it's like the way he talks about people and, and you know, well, there's blackouts. There's that interview at the end. There's one last interview with David Harris. And I think they said it happened in 86. And by that time, he would have been on death row already. 
and yeah, this was an. It, this is this, you're talking about the t- with the tape recorder. Yeah, the audio only tape recorder interview. Yeah, I think that's because the camera broke. I read somewhere that that Errol Morris's camera situation, uh, the camera wasn't working, so oh. he had to use the yeah. tape recorder in the interview. Well, in that interview, David Harris doesn't exactly confess, but at the end, he pretty much implies or says that Randall Adams would not be in prison if he had a place to stay for someone who helped him out. Yeah, he comes and fucking framed him because Randall Adams wouldn't let him crash at his motel room. He comes as close to confessing as you can come without doing it. Yeah. And like, and that if, him how how he knows he goes because I'm the one who knows because I'm the one that knows that's fucking terrifying when yeah. he says that and just the way he keeps harping on that point that like yeah. well, if he had just if you know let me stay let me stay I guess none of this would have happened and that speaks to him being something more than someone who had a little trauma in their past or even well, a lot of trauma in their that, past. The thing is, is that also speaks to someone who is unable to empathize or unable yeah. to like reflect upon what another person's circumstances are. Because again, it's like saying, why did that guy come at me with a gun? What is he crazy? He's saying, well, if this guy hadn't had fulfilled my needs or desires at the time and not made life inconvenient for me, then he wouldn't be in the situation. He still has yeah. no ability to understand. Like I'm a 16 year old who's waving a gun around and is trying to get this guy to watch softcore porn with me. <laughs> and he doesn't want me to stay at his place. Gee, maybe I'm the fucking asshole here. Like yeah. at no point does he have that kind of self-awareness about it. I wonder if he ever did. I bet he didn't. I don't think he ever, that's the thing. I don't think he ever did because yeah. it seems like by all the accounts of him, even the the cop in Vidor who knows him personally, who talks about like, yeah, David's a violent person. He's a dangerous, psychotic person who does these awful things, but you know, you wouldn't know it to just talk to him because yeah. he doesn't have that kind of awareness. Like there's whatever, whatever capacity for thinking that is, he doesn't have it. Yeah. And so at the end, we find out Randall Adams is still in prison and David Harris is now in prison on death row for murder. But there is good news at the end of this. Good ish. I mean, for one thing, this documentary, probably because it was as groundbreaking as it was and no one had ever seen the criminal justice system exposed this way, it almost immediately leads to Randall Adams being released by 1989 he yeah. was out of prison yeah. which, i think it's like less than a year after it premiered yeah uh, which Randall is adams is out unprecedented now i, I mean it's fucked up because it's still like well he's been in jail for like 13 years <laughs> but yeah. he was in oh jail well. for 13 years and also because his sentence was just thrown out as opposed to him being pardoned he wasn't eligible to get any money from the state for being wrong wrongful conviction yeah had it happened today he would be he would get i think it was eighty thousand dollars per year that he was locked up which that's not nothing that's not nothing at all you can do a lot of advocacy work with that money right and that's what he spent the rest of his life doing was being an anti-death penalty advocate he and errol morris had a weird legal falling out where he sued Errol Morris because he thought he was just signing over the rights to make a documentary 
and not the rights to his entire life. And they end up settling out of court, which that's fine. I mean, yeah, Errol Morris, groundbreaking filmmaker, has done a lot of great stuff. Also has some questionable ethics. <laughs> yeah. And so, it, yeah, the I guess the sad part of the ending is Randall Adams uh, died at the age of 61 in October 2010 of brain cancer. By that point, he was living so anonymously, the news media did not realize he died until the following Jeez. year. Yikes. Yeah. Yikes. Which, I mean, I, he, you can tell from his interviews that he probably wasn't the kind of guy who was like, this is going to make me a star. Like, I don't, I don't think he had aspirations to get a reality show, so to speak. Those didn't yeah. exist back then. But it no, didn't I think, seem like he wanted to be a media sensation over there. No. And at this point, too, like he even in the documentary, that whole, I love this part where he's talking about his reaction to it and the idea of guilt versus uh, innocence and like how it presents itself in a person's behavior when he's just like, what else are you going to do? I become numb to it. Yeah. Like this is so clearly, he thinks it's a dream. Like that's what it's going to break your brain. It's going to make you not like take certain things seriously or question like, you know, your very reality. I think that this experience like had probably broken him to that degree where it's like, no, I mean, even the even Dennis White, his attorney, like stopped practicing law like this case broke him. Yeah, because he was just like, well, if this is the way it is, I want nothing to do with this. Yeah. And, and Randall Adams is correct when he talks about how this case like he went to court because like the state wanted to kill him like the state. It wasn't that they were arguing whether he did this or not. That ship had sailed. But yeah. then he has to go through like two different appeals where the whole thing is your honor. We need to fucking kill this guy. Yeah. And, and it's he's like, just like, ah, please don't kill me. <laughs> yeah. Like imagine like, having no criminal record and then going from that to the state being like, we have to murder this man to get him yeah. out of society. Yeah. When he starts listing the things that happen to the human body, when you're electrocuted to death. Yeah. Like, it's just like, fuck. I mean, this is a guy who knows what's going to happen to him. If it happens, like that'll f exactly. That'll change the way your brain works. I yeah. think. Yeah. No matter who you are. But fortunately he did eventually get out. This documentary served a purpose in yeah. that way. Yeah. And it's a great documentary. Yeah. It's a really good documentary. It's a, a classic. If you haven't seen it, uh, are you really a true crime fan? I guess. <laughs> or well, it's because... also so great because you get that like you get the Philip Glass score, which for its time was like uh, for the subject matter is a little irreverent. It's a little strange. Yeah. It's a little jarring, but it's also kind of a little uh, you know, it's familiar in a lot of ways. But you also have that like, you know, the Errol Morris like debt head on interview style where this is before he developed the Interatron, so it's not quite as like right there as like fog of war. Yeah. or fast cheap out of control but it is like as close as to to direct as you can get and it's a very like it's a very different experience from the, you know at what at the time was the traditional documentary interview style so yeah you gotta see it you gotta see it yeah you got you have to have watched this if you're listening to this podcast, I mean, especially if you're listening to this episode. Yeah, because now we've just spoiled everything for you. Yeah, yeah. Now so you're now there's like, if you haven't watched it, too bad you fucked up. 
But also maybe you should avoid this in the future by following us on Instagram, where I post what we're going to be covering that week ahead of time. There you go. So if you were doing your due diligence on social media, then this would not be a problem. Not to victim blame, but... Yeah, I mean, honestly, we we all have to be accountable to ourselves. Right, right. And I think you need to ask yourself if you think that you're worth it. That's all. I mean, that's not for me or Adam to decide. That's up to you. It's all up to you. (laughs) It's in your hands, listeners. Don't you forget it. All right. I think that's our episode, right? Yeah, sure. Why not? I think we did it. We ended on a high note. Yeah, cops suck. Surprise. (laughs) Exactly. Andy, thank you so much for doing the pod. Thank you. I will always do this show. I love it. I love talking to you. I have a million ideas for stuff we could watch. I'm I'm always down. Send them my way. I do this podcast every week. I need ideas. Hell yeah. Uh, do you have anything to plug before we get out of here? Besides the, the Fleetwood Mac season of You Don't Even Like This Band. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously. If Which, you're, again, that's you should already be listening to that. Yeah, that you have to be a subscriber to hear. But we are we we did put out the Oasis season for free recently. I and mean, we're putting out the Steve Earle season. Mm, that's Obviously. a good season. That's a good se- look. We make the Steve Earle season has a lot of jokes that we, a lot of things that we call back to in, yes. in the Fleetwood Mac season. So if you have, if you're listening yeah. to the Fleetwood Mac season and you haven't heard the Steve Earle season, you're here occasionally. You're hearing a reference to something you have no yeah. idea what's going on. You have no idea why we're talking about shooting stuff with a fifty-fifty. Yeah, that's really, I think, the big one. Yeah. yeah. Or the, if I'm on the phone, you want me on the phone because you know I'm not on my way to your house <laughs> to frame you for the murder of police officer Robert Wood. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I I mean, I always bring up Steve Earle when I bring this up, but I reference so often the story about him talking <laughs> about wanting to go kill a music executive, but he didn't do it because he didn't have a driver's license. <laughs> driver's license it's like steve i don't think you were gonna kill that guy like that doesn't sound like the proper commitment to make to commit a murder (laughs) i'm gonna kill the guy but i'm not gonna get a ticket over it yeah you you can't get on a plane steve like (laughs) i don't know anyway listen to that podcast andy what do you have to plug uh look good for the boys season five is going strong uh, we're in our Pride Month festivities where we are examining the career, uh, the horror film career of James Whale. So a lot of classic stuff there. Sure. And uh, I mean, someday Ghoul School will be back. Someday. Someday. But uh, yeah, that's it. I don't have anything else going on, really. Nothing exciting. I mean, maybe in October there will be some stuff to report. Yeah, there might be. There might be. Who knows? Yeah, I don't. Uh, there's too much going on for me to even plug anything. Oh, see, we got two opposite problems here. I got nothing to plug, and you got too much to settle on anything. Oh, there's like the, all the changes to the network, and oh, not, but yeah. mostly just follow us on Instagram at True Crime Sucks. And I think that's it. We should get out of here. And yeah, I gotta go. Say goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. We love you. <laughs>